space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Season 1 Part 2. This time is Episode 8. We are in TOS Season 1. Tomorrow is yesterday. Now, we've gone forward a year in time as far as uh, the Star Trek crew are concerned, but we've gone back a year in time as far as the TV is concerned because we were in uh, Season 2 last week, but now we're in Season 1 this week, but we've gone into the future. Oh, temporal mechanics. I can't stand it. Unbelievable. Um, But we are in 1969, and I am not alone again. I have probably the greatest companion I could possibly have. Paul, are you on the other end of this? Yes, I am. <laughs> I thought yeah, I'd uh, yeah. <laughs> give you a bit of a I'm pause there. Just, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I thought I was going to have to go through this on alone, because this is a crazy episode. It certainly is. It certainly <laughs> is. <laughs> we, uh, we get to start at uh, zero minutes, zero seconds uh, with the teaser, um, the open teaser. We start with a, a ton of stock footage. Um, we see all these uh, fighter jets and interceptors, as uh, Spock likes to say, uh, possibly nuclear armed interceptors. At first, uh, you get this captain who's sitting in an office. There's a guy sitting by the radar. Uh, he's very nonchalant about it. He doesn't really uh, believe what's coming in. They mention Omaha, that uh, the Enterprise is over Omaha, or this UFO, I should say, uh, is over Omaha. And they finally realize they've got to dispatch these interceptors. And um, just as they get into visual range, it's the Enterprise, I would say whizzing by, but it's sort of tipping and bowing. And um, it's a very odd um, new bit of uh, CGI that they put into this. What version were you watching, Paul? Was it the original or was it the redos? I was watching the redos, but it took me a couple of attempts to um, to figure that out because I watched it on my copy which I have which I, I'm not too sure whether it is or isn't uh, the new one it's, it, supposedly it is but when it came to the title it was you know the, and the music it was totally different and uh, I thought that's a bit strange um, so I went onto Netflix and it was the same thing there so obviously I and when well, you realize when you see the quality of the um, the planets as usual uh, you realize that it, it, it is the updated version but, but it, it was odd. It was it was a strange beginning. <laughs> it is. It's really strange. And just seeing the new special effects without the star background, without the black background, and you've got clouds that are sort of recognisable against it, it it looks almost as hokey as the original special effects that I seem to remember. Um, as I've said before, on the Blu-ray copy, uh, ho- over here in the UK at least, you can get both. You can watch the original and then you can watch the updated C- uh, CGI. And it just it, it feels like it should be from the 60s, but it's too clean. And it's a really jarring thing to watch. Um, that ends the opener at 1 minute and 18 seconds. We go past the title sequence and we come back at 2 minutes and 10 seconds. We get our captain's log explaining that they were on their way to Starbase 9 for resupply when they came across a black star. 
Now, a black star is a real thing. It is a concept in physics. It is sort of seen as a classical interpretation that gets you two black holes, uh, but is generally seen as sort of an antiquated idea. It's not the most popular um, version of uh, black hole, black stars uh, that you come across. So it does show its 1960s colours here. Um, it took them all warp power in reverse to break away, and like the snapping of a rubber band, they slingshot back and break away. Uh, I do like a nice simple explanation. How about you, Paul? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you've got to put it into layman's terms, otherwise uh, you know, we'd all be experts and we'd, we'd all be doing it. It always reminds me of that episode of uh, Futurama, uh, where Fry is also, I think it's actually the Star Trek episode, where they're just going over the top with the simple explanations that actually have nothing to do with what they just talked about. Um, it, it's always makes me makes me laugh. Um, so the, the power is out, and uh, they're having power problems, power fluctuations. But just as the lights return, uh, Kirk and Spock get the opportunity to manhandle Uhura to her feet. Um, any thoughts on the staging and the blocking on that? Um, yes. Yeah. Why, why did it take the two of them? <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. No, no, I've got it. <laughs> and not just you know, oh, holding her by the hand and helping her up, but she can get to her feet by herself. No, grabbing her by underneath the shoulders and dragging her to her feet and <laughs> yeah. throwing her into the chair. It was just so bizarre. And then... Kirk goes over to uh, help the man, and he just sort of taps him on the shoulder. Up you come, that's it. You've you've got it. You're fine. No problems whatsoever. You know what? The, poor, you know what these telephonists are like. You know, get up and get, get back on your chair and answer that phone, woman. Come on. No slacking. Are you okay, mate? Yeah, get up. <laughs> that does seem to be a theme as we're going through this episode, so we might have to come back to that. Um, uh, Uhura uh, tells us there is uh, no Starfleet channel. She can't hear any chatter, uh, but she is getting some ground radio traffic. And we start hearing uh, the first man shot to the moon, Wednesday, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, we're going to go into a bit more detail on this later. But just to let you know, the Apollo program is going on at this time. And at no point was any moonshot uh, launch or anything like that from any of the Apollo missions scheduled for 6 a.m. So what one they're talking about? We don't know. Uh, so this might be an alternate timeline. So we'll have to figure that out in our ratings criteria. We uh, also get the what meme. Uh, you might have seen this on lots of social media. Uh, Kirk's face suddenly turning from Spock towards the view screen and going, what? And I think I might be editing that into this episode as there are quite a few times where I, I have the exact same reaction. What is going on? Uh, we talk about time warps and whiplash effects. Uh, anything you want to say about this so far, Paul? Time travel. Since the first day on the job as a Starfleet captain, I swore I'd never let myself get caught into one of those godforsaken paradoxes. The future is the past. The past is the future. It all gives me a headache. Yep, uh, I think that's a, that's a good policy. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure one of the captains I remember reading about said that exact phrase. It's crazy. Yes, yeah, I think she pinched it off me. I think that's, that's yeah, ridiculous. That's she must have been listening to this podcast in the future, and she picked it up off me. <laughs> I think. Pass me the paracetamol, will you? <laughs> we uh, then hear about an interceptor being sent, captained by John Christopher, otherwise known as Blackjack, otherwise known as Blue Jay 4. And at this point, we're going to pause the episode... And we seem to zip over to an alternate 
version of this scene at 45 minutes and 55 seconds, which is actually at the end of the episode. The Enterprise, which was above the Interceptor, has now disappeared, strangely enough. Uh, he just reports it as a UFO, and off he goes on his way. Blue J4 just returns to base, and we stop at 46 minutes and 45 seconds. We now come back into the episode at 5 minutes 59 seconds. Hang on a minute. What just happened there? It's almost like we had two timelines going on. Very, very strange. Uh, we're watching two things happening at the same time. Very weird. Um, there's a description of the Enterprise having two cylinders at the top, two cylinders on the bottom, and uh, purpose unknown. And we now get Spock warning about the Interceptor, possibly nuclear armed, because they're having power problems. If they fire a nuclear, we uh, a nuclear weapon at the Enterprise, it could actually damage them beyond repair. He does warn Kirk that the tractor beam could break the plane apart. And from what I remember from school about uh, technology this time, it was basically like tinfoil, so it probably would be ripped apart quite easily. They beam the pilot aboard. Now, this is what I want to get your view on, uh, Paul. They beam the pilot on board. That's Kirk's first take. He doesn't beam him back down to the, you know, the the landing site or maybe into some field in a desert somewhere or somewhere far away. He beams him on board. Now, I'm pretty sure that's a violation of temporal directive. How about your thoughts? Um, I think the first instinct of Kirk is to save the guy's life. It's his problem. It's his issue that he's he's created this problem. You know, he's, he's you know, by by purely by mistake, by accident. Um, you know, they, without realizing how fragile an aircraft would be, they put the the tractor beam on and, and crushed the plane. Well, you don't want to kill the guy. So immediately take him back out, take him out, and keep a hold of him, because you you could always say, well, you know, the plane blew up for whatever reason. You know, it, 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 you know, perhaps it flew too high, or, or you know, they had a fault and the plane crashed. Um, but the the problem is uh, that you know, so that is that's his first instinct. You know, is to save a guy's life because he's you know, the, the issue is caused. Um, if he puts him down, beams him up, and then puts him down somewhere else, now there's a bit of explaining to do on the pilot's behalf. <laughs> yeah, okay, I was at thirty-five thousand feet chasing a UFO, and suddenly I'm in Omaha. You know, I mean, what? It's, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> true, very true. Uh, I suppose better to have him alive in a place you can see to him rather than let rumours run rampant. Um, we've uh, just had a few episodes back. We've had conspiracies that were nicely curtailed as weather balloons being crashed into Roswell. And so I suppose maybe the captain wants to you know, forego that, maybe add another story just like Roswell. But it did seem odd that he didn't consider perhaps another option, perhaps get the doctor into the transporter room straight away to maybe knock him out with some drugs, uh, maybe try some other techniques. Things that at this point in Starfleet history are more than possible. You could try and introduce some sort of uh, I don't know, a medically induced coma, I guess, till you figure out what you can do with him. Uh, who knows? The captain comes aboard and he's dealing with it surprisingly well, uh, considering he's been beamed aboard. He's gone through a transport, which at this point in uh, proper prime history, no human has gone through before. And Spock is on the bridge just as he arrives, but not before John Christopher sees a woman on the crew. She's a crewman. You've got women on board. What's going on? Uh, as I said before, this seems to be a bit of a theme going through this episode. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts, Paul, on how dated this might make the episode? 
Um, no, no, I think it, 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 it puts it in its, into context because it is, you know, this guy obviously is from the 60s and they're pointing this out. They're, you know, they're point, saying to the, to our audience, you know, the, the audience says we're watching it. This is what it was like back then. Now we're in the future. It's different. You know, we are progressive. We are, you know, we can, you know, we have women in, in, in space now. My reaction, my, my um, worry was that when he got onto the bridge, there was no reaction to the fact that although Uhura was there and she was a woman, she was a black woman. And I would have thought that would have caused more of a stir. I get, or another, more of a stir, I should say, another stir. Not only do you have women, you have black women. But that wasn't pointed out as an issue. And I don't know whether that was because of a, um, a conscious thought on their part to say, well, he knows there's women on board now. So therefore, he'll accept it, or whether they were thinking, well, black women are, not, uh, are women as well, so it's not an issue that she's black. It's just, you know, she's a woman, and that's the issue. So I don't really know where they were going with it, or whether they just they just didn't write it into the script. They can't go around the whole ship going, hey, there's another man over there. There's a there's a Russian here for goodness sake. There's a Chinese bloke over there. What's going on? This is supposed to be an American ship. Now it was, yeah. I mean, they pointed out once, and then they didn't go with it a bit further on down the line. That's fine. I'm glad you said American ship. Uh, there is a nice little conversation in the turbo lift where we find out there are only 12 uh, ships, just like the Enterprise in Starfleet. Uh, it is said by Kirk as if there are only 12 ships. It's a very odd line the way he delivers it. Um, but we can sort of apply something called head cannon and change that around and just say there's 12 of this particular type of ship. They answer to the United Earth Space Probe Agency. That's their authority. Uh, it's the first time we ever hear it uh, in Star Trek, and I think it's the last time indeed. And if I remember my history, I think that might be the rebranding time when uh, Starfleet was just going through a whole bunch of rebranding all, all the time. You know, they were they wanted to change it up a bit. They got loads of different uh, members joining the Federation. We want a nice inclusive title for the Earth ships, and then maybe a nice inclusive title for the Vulcan ships and everything like that. And then we just realised Starfleet works. It's all right. It's all good. Um, any thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah, they went from a, a, a probe uh, to a command, which um, uh, yeah, it's a bit strange. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it never sound right. I mean, Starfleet, Starfleet Command is the thing, even though it's command, which is a bit militaristic. Probe, uh, hmm. it it sounds odd. It doesn't really. I mean, it's less offensive. It's less sort of dictatorship. But it really doesn't mean anything, um, and especially since there's supposed to be a federation of, of a lot of people, then probing doesn't really do it for me, so to speak. Um, I, I, and I know it's the, the, you know, the Earth has become the center of it and all that, but it's it's a bit uh, strange that um, they are saying that we will you know, go out and discover things when it was actually Earth that was discovered. Yeah, by the by the Vulcans, of course. So, no, and it was it, it really does sort of because from now on it's Starfleet Command, and and we're talking what sixty years, fifty years, sixty years now of hearing Starfleet Command. So when you hear um, any other description for it, it does sound really strange. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I uh, sort of head canning it or head cannoning the, the whole idea. I sort of wrote it off that this has always been like the underpinning. This is like the the admin level of Starfleet is that, you know, if you're a ship that's kind of designed 
around Mars and launched from Mars. And because you're more to do with Earth, majority of your crew are human. Maybe, you know, that deals with like, you know, uh, if there were such thing as pay, you know, it comes through the USPA. Uh, but Starfleet overall, they're the kind of umbrella company. Uh, and they're the ones that take care of, you know, majority of uh, Andorian ships or Vulcan ships and, and so forth and things like that. And, you know, we don't talk about it ever again because it's just one human talking to another human. If it were sort of to come up in a brand new TV show right now, perhaps in Picard in the next series, um, you know, maybe a human talking to another human might mention it. Uh, John Christopher then says that he never believed in little green men and the first alien he meets is a tall green blooded man. So I, I quite like that. There's a bit of poetic irony in that, I think, for me. Yeah, they do like writing that in, don't they? I mean, pretty much every time travel show seems to have that moment in it, doesn't it? I mean, the last one we were looking at, uh, when he was wearing a hat, and then there was a bit of a scuffle in the office, and um, and I've forgotten the girl's name now, but uh, Teddy Gar's character uh, pulls off the hat and reveals, she goes, oh, what are you? And yeah, so every episode has it. <laughs> but this time he doesn't have to hide it, because he's on his own ship, he's absolutely fine. Uh, it's, it's someone else's problem now to try and figure that out. Uh, Spock then becomes the first person to raise the problem. John's on the ship, we can't actually return him. He then goes on to describe, you know, imagine if an unscrupulous man were to know the future. He could manipulate stock markets. He could change political structures. Uh, he could change what must be. And uh, it put me in mind of an episode a couple of my, a couple of episodes back where I saw there was a hippie standing on a on a hill and he saw a time ship crashing. Strange that. Hmm. No, I'm sure that won't come back. Now nah, that's fine. Um. Kirk admits that that kind of logic is very annoying, but there is a great comedy moment where uh, it just John is sort of rubbing his ear because he's a bit confused. But of course, just at the moment when the only crew member with some funny ears is looking directly at him, uh, it, it just put me in those those awkward moments where you do something inadvertent and it's just in front of the wrong person and something like that. You know, just you're in an awkward social situation and you say or do that wrong thing and it's like why did i do it in front of that person you know why was i cleaning my glasses when you know someone came in or, or, or anything like that just those awkward situations um but i do love uhura's face uh when she's just she doesn't have to say anything she just looks at it and she understands the whole situation we then get the computer scene and this is where i'm going to put in another kirk what uh He's sitting in his quarters with this newly upgraded computer and we start learning that the computer has somehow developed a bit of a personality. Um, I've played around, like I say, with a fair few Alexas, you know, in a museum uh, every now and then, but they've never had this kind of personality. They are exceptionally flirtatious and Kirk seems to be very annoyed and Spock seems to be very annoyed as well. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether he's annoyed at it having a personality or whether it seems to be a woman. It's another part of this episode that seems to be revolving around women. I'm not entirely sure what the theme of this episode is supposed to be at the moment. Hmm, yeah, I, my um, take on his reaction was, oh, this is, um, oh, here's that voice again, sort of thing. You know, it, you know something that is, it's almost his responsibility because he was, Probably a head, you know, head of the um, of the upgrade. He was probably managing the upgrade at the time, and this is more of a sort of. I know, he, I know, he doesn't have. Uh, he's half human, so he sort of has some emotions, but he's almost like embarrassed about it. He's like, oh, 
sorry, Captain, that's my fault, you know. Oh, I know, I know, I'll get it fixed, I'll get it fixed. You know, it's that sort of look on his face that I that I saw it as. <laughs> yeah, he, the way he says it, he, he's more annoyed at it being uh, having a giggle. Um, and uh, it has an infuriating tendency to giggle. Uh, all because of this refit at Signet 14, which is a planet uh, entirely populated by women who felt that the computer needed a personality. And uh, I like that Christopher doesn't just sort of sit back and isn't sort of being obnoxious. He's not saying, well, what about me and my problems? He's actually kind of enjoying it. He's kind of liking them squirming around and having this weird problem with the computer and how your problems don't seem to be as bad as my problems. Um we get a call in from Scotty and he talks about how uh, there's a need for a four hour reboot of the engines. And it did make me think, is this a Scotty estimate? Uh, is he trying to, uh, to fudge it a bit? You know, everyone knows it would have taken 24 hours, but he can do it in four. So it's all right. Uh, uh, but uh, he seems quite genuine in this one. He's saying four hours for the reboot, uh, but we are prisoners of time. Uh, and I did like this idea that they're both prisoners. Just because he's on the ship, Christopher isn't the only one uh, in any kind of trouble. Uh, any thoughts on that? No, he's right. Yeah, the old Scotty uh, estimate. Yeah, that's, that's something we all do, isn't we? We always try and give ourselves more time to, to say to the boss, I'll get that report done in, in uh, an hour, knowing you can quite easily do it in half an hour. Um, but it gives you that bit of extra wiggle time in case you need to change anything. So, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's a Scotty, uh, Scottyism. It's a bit like editing a podcast and making sure you've got enough time. It's very strange. Um, uh, there's one final uh, kickback on the computer, and uh, Kirk says, uh, I advise that this be repaired or scrapped. And the computer seems a bit offended. And okay. Uh, it's such a bizarre thing that this story element sort of carries through. And it's even there in the end of the episode, so that you know that everything's okay, is that the computer has still got this bizarre personality. I don't. I still don't know what the thought process was behind the idea of this computer had a weird, flirtatious um, personality. Very strange. Um, yeah, there is a there is a B plot there somewhere along the line, isn't there? That yeah, that had happened. I'm not too sure whether there might have been a um, another spin-off uh, idea there. You know, there, there may be the, there's an episode gone missing about you know, getting this thing done. But you never know. It might it might get used in in another another time. I would love that. I would love to see that episode. And I think that might be something that comes into our uh, alterations criteria. Mm. Um, Christopher uh, tries to make an escape. He knocks out a red shirt, doesn't kill. So we've got a red shirt who survives, just to make sure. Crewman Kyle looks like he's going to get it because he's having a phaser pointed at him. Now, I do like Crewman Kyle. This is a little bit of a tangent. Um, you know, you've got Crewman Kyle, you've got Chief O'Brien. Um, I do like the transporter chiefs. I kind of wish they made more of the character of Kyle overall. Um, as far as I'm aware, he only sort of comes back a few episodes. Uh, but he's, he always seems quite blasé, like he's in complete control of his domain. Um, but here he is having a phaser pointed at him. Uh, any thoughts on Kyle? Uh, no, he, he's an underused character, I, I think. Um, they, they could have used him a bit more, but then again, they sort of put Scotty into that position, saving a bit of money, obviously. But... Um, yeah, no, I do like him actually. He is one of these, like you say, like a, a an O'Brien character that is is totally underused. Uh, we've got McCoy uh, in sick bay. Christopher has been knocked out by Kirk um, with a bit of Kirk foo, which we'll come back to later in a moment. Um, and uh, the supplies are running out. Kirk is 
ever the pessimist. You know, it's going to happen some point. We've got to figure out what's going on. Uh, but maybe pragmatic rather than pessimistic on this one. Uh, he does talk about the crew size and 430 chances for things to go wrong. Um, yeah, absolutely. If 430 people have to then go into Earth and they've got complete future knowledge, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Spock comes in with uh, admitting an error. Now, earlier in the episode, he does say that uh, Christopher doesn't actually have any kind of contribution to give to history. And I'm starting to worry that Spock isn't as good at his job as we thought he was. Last episode, he completely missed any record of Gary Seven and uh, his mission on Earth. And this episode, he, he said, Gar uh, Christopher doesn't have any contribution to history. Oh, hang on a minute. No, his son does. Isn't that the first point of call? Don't you look into the family when, when you're time traveling and you want to look at the knock-on effects of someone? Wouldn't the first call be immediate family? Now, that's a good point. Uh, and you raise it, and now this is where the quirks of time travel uh, come in here, and the quirks of doing a uh, podcast in uh, uh, chronological order, because this is actually the first time they go back. So this isn't the this is the first time he makes this mistake. It's the Gary Seven one that's the second mistake. So he should have known better then. <laughs> so to make, to make a mistake here, we can sort of forgive him. Because he's thought logically, oh, well, you know, does this guy really have it? Oh, yeah, okay, well, no, yeah, no. He, I've looked down his timeline, and in his life, even though he has kids, um, you know, there is no significant thing. Yeah, he should have seen it. He should have spotted it. Spock should have really, you know, really done better than that. But it's the Gary Seven episode that he should have looked at into depth and then caught it a bit better there. Uh, so, yeah. That's that's the problem with doing these episodes chronologically, sort of chronologically, sort of. You know, uh, just uh, ignorance of your future self is no defence, I have to say, in about 500 years' time. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's called the Minority Report Law, so unfortunately, there we go. Um, but uh, Colonel Sean Jeffrey Christopher, the son of John Christopher, will head up, now this is the way they say it, head up, the first Earth-Saturn probe. Now, they don't actually say that he's in charge of it. They don't say manned. They said head up. And later, we will find out that this is the obviously infamous uh, 2009 uh, Saturn manned flight that happened, which, of course, you must remember because it's only about 11 years ago in your timeline. Uh, when did that happen again? Uh, I 2009. Uh, it was the, it was the, the famous Earth Saturn manned probe, wasn't that? Uh, that no, not, nothing like that. Well, I mean, we're we're only just trying to get to Mars at the moment. Um, I, I, that, that, that happened like ages before. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How did, did that work? Did Gary Seven do something that altered the timeline? It must be. We might be sitting in an alternate timeline. This is very weird. Mm. So we are now retrospectively saying that the Gary Seven episode may be a divergent term timeline. Maybe all of our history was the same up to 1968. And perhaps from 1969 onwards, your timeline, which is the TV timeline and the Trek universe, is diverting. Maybe something's different there as well. Hmm. Maybe it's just a convenient plot device mm. so that we can get up predicting history I yeah know. i don't know next next you'll be telling me there's like been a third world war or something yeah very very strange very strange very strange um 
But I'm going to use this and we're going to pause now for the history bit. In order for that to sort of work out, 2009 would be, uh, so if we're saying he's in his late 30s, that would be his son. And so working back, it is 1969. So this is where we're going to pause and do our history bit. Now, Paul, you have a lot more knowledge about a certain area of history that happens in July of this year, but I'm just going to give some background to what else happened in 1969. Starting in January, we've got we've got Led Zeppelin released the first album called Led Zeppelin. Um, so if you want your sort of art uh, uh, artistic um, anchor for time, that is your first bit in January of this year. Now, funnily enough, in January 14th of this year, there is an explosion on a little ship called the USS Enterprise, where it is stationed in Hawaii and accidentally kills 27 and injures 314 people on board. That's almost 430 people. It's almost the same crew complement as this Enterprise. Very, very strange indeed. But it was nice to see that the Enterprise was in history, even if it was for tragic circumstances. Later on, we have Richard Nixon is sworn in as the 37th President of the United States. I'll hold back any booing, just in case there's any comments. Elvis Presley steps into a recording studio in Memphis, and it forms part of his comeback uh, tour, and he sort of comes back to prominence. By February, we have Boeing 747 actually launches on its first commercial flight. So in our last episode, we found out that 747 had been uh, designed and built, but the first commercial flight of Boeing 747 actually takes place um, from Everett in Washington. The Apollo program has begun in March of this year with Apollo 9, but we'll go more into that in a moment. This one for the European fans, uh, in March of this year, the Eurovision Song Contest for 1969, there are four co-winners between Spain, UK, Netherlands and France. Uh, the contest was actually taken place in Madrid. Now, this point might not mean anything to any US listeners out there, but uh, I believe at the time this episode has been released, it's a couple of weeks out already, but on Netflix there might be a movie about the Eurovision Song Contest. Do give that a look. Uh, by August of 1969, the Beatles have their now famous and legendary uh, photography session on the Zebra Crossing of Abbey Road. But later on this year, they will also have their final concert together as the Beatles. The Woodstock Festival also takes place uh, August 15th to the 18th. Everyone thought they were at Woodstock. Um, but uh, this is another big pop culture moment in history. By September of this year, there is an annular solar eclipse, which uh, makes it um, uh, uh, impossible to see from the Pacific Ocean and South Americas. So there's some sort of planetary alignments going on whilst all this time travel is going on. We've also got a little throwback to the first episode of this part of the season. On September 13th, the very first episode of Scooby-Doo airs in 1969. I just hope they're not driving anywhere around in 1930s New York. That would be very, very, very disappointing. It would explain a lot. <laughs> uh, that's really the last of the really big uh, moments in history for 1969, apart from one really big one. And I'm going to hand over to Paul right now. Okay, so everybody knows about Apollo and uh, the space race, uh, so I'm not going to bore everybody with that. It's it's you know everybody's seen films about that and things. Um, but what one thing that uh, does interest me in this is uh, the idea of getting a man onto the moon 
um, obviously Kennedy's, uh, JFK's idea before his death. Uh, it was actually to try and get um, Americans and Russians in a joint um, space uh, vehicle and get them both on the moon at the same time. Uh, this wasn't accepted by the Russians, and when Kennedy was shot, they, they said, right, okay, that's it, enough, we'll go, we'll go by ourselves and we'll, um, we'll do it ourselves. So th that would have been a totally different, um, a totally different moon landing. Uh, incredible to think that that could have, you know, that, that was actually being put forward. Uh, could have maybe stopped the, or shortened the, the, the Cold War. Um, a better understanding between the two countries. Uh, but apparently the Russians didn't want to go ahead with it. Um, the launch of Apollo 13, which uh, has been mentioned in this uh, story that we're talking about now, as um, there was, there was uh, I think they say there is a, a launch of a vehicle, or a significant launch on uh, this day, uh, and it was a Wednesday. The launch for Apollo, thir uh, for Apollo 11 was on a Wednesday. So they got that bit right. Um, they said it was 6 in the morning. Well, it might have been delayed because it was actually about 1 o'clock, or 1.32 to be exact. Um, so, yeah, they were, pretty, they were pretty close. with. And don't forget, this, this TV program that we are watching here um, was made two years before this happened. So it's a pretty good pretty good guess. I mean, you got a 1 in 7 chance, but it was a pretty good guess that they got it on that, on that right day. And saying it was in that year. Um, it, was, it was pretty good. You know, saying at the end of the end of the um, uh, the decade, which is obviously what they were aiming for. So uh, yeah, pretty prescient. But the, what, what's always frightened me about the, the, these um, the, 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 these rockets? They, they're massive things. They're built obviously solid built. You know, they, they have to put up with them a, an incredible amount of thrust and acceleration and, and you get up into space and there's a vacuum there you have to make sure that the pressures are right and yet if any one of those um, astronauts had taken a pen and thrown it at the wall it would have gone straight through the uh, lunar module skin out the other side and the whole thing would have exploded it was made out of very very thin metal to keep the weight down it's frightening to think that something you know d that was so important about keeping people alive was made very very thin material. Um, but yes, it's uh, it it took some, something like five hundred thousand people, five hundred thousand people, to get the three men onto the moon and all the other missions before and after that. Not one of those people has ever come forward and said. Um, well, actually, what we did was have this little studio set up, um, and you know we sort of you know, put a film on, you know, made it look a bit dodgy so that it looks as though it's a long way away. Not one person has ever come forward and said that, and yet two people in the White House, and it's national news that one has had sex with the other. Uh, all Mr. Trump has to do is fart, and suddenly everybody knows about it. He's tweeting out all the secrets. People tell me that the moon landings are faked. No, no. It's much easier to get them on there than it is to try and fake it. What, what sort of, what sort of films did we have around at the time? Ooh, let me think. Two thousand and one, maybe. That was probably a decent attempt at, at some good uh, uh, special effects. 
Uh, I think the budget for that was probably slightly higher than the, the Apollo. <laughs> the spacecraft is probably a lot sturdier as well. Yes, that's right. <laughs> It, it's it's always put me in mind of that um, just the idea that um, the conspiracies which they mention in the later scene uh, that we'll come up to when they talk about weather balloons and conspiracies and it'll just be one more person who was uh, convinced he saw a UFO but will just be easily dismissed um, this conspiracy can easily be dismissed just purely for paperwork you know, you've got mountains and mountains of paperwork being produced by this programme before the age where computers did all the calculations, you've got teams of uh, people just sitting in rooms, crunching numbers, making sure it's all gone all right. And you've got a giant superpower, as you just mentioned, who aren't interested in this, but are actively an aggressor in this space race, who would have called out, could have, would have called out fouls if anything remotely uh, gave any indication that this was faked, that this was in a studio somewhere. Uh, one Russian spy somewhere would have completely dismantled the entire operation and Russia would have been uh, well ahead by destroying any kind of public trust in that kind of program. Um, they have a vested interest in destroying um, America at this point because of they want to be the first to the moon. They would have caught it well before then. Uh, so it, it still baffles me why people still lend credence to that. But if I remember correctly, 2020, wasn't that the resurgence of Flat Earthers as well? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they've um, they've brought people from all around the globe to have a conference um, about Flat Earth. It's almost like they should say that a little bit slower and just realise what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> strange. Um, uh, they need to uh, get down to the complex uh, where uh, Christopher launched in Omaha, uh, he said that he knows the base and he'll sketch out a layout. It seemed a bit weird why they're asking him to sketch it out. You know, surely they would have records. You know, they are an Earth spaceship. Uh, he's sort of doing that. Or they've got sensors that they would be able to work out where things are in a certain base, particularly considering we're reliant on how accurate their transporter sensors are going to be later on in this episode. They would surely have advanced ways of finding out where things are in a base. Any well, thoughts? Yeah, exactly. Um, coordinates. Give, can you give us the coordinates to beam uh, down into this locked room? Yes. No problem. Um, okay, so they beam him into the basement. Now, hang on a minute. What floor? What floor? So you need altitude as well. So you need to know that where you're being beamed into is also maybe 130 feet high. You know, it's not... You need some sort of device to see that i mean surely like scanning it or with something maybe i don't know it does make me think that our transport is really just a, a big hatch on the enterprise where they just kick you out and you fall down to the planet below i mean it's, yeah, it's that's what that noise is when he goes it's a play that at three or four times speed you know when you're listening to this podcast when it's released on the episode just play it at three or four times speed and maybe it's the exact same sound who knows um uh, we've got another questionable landing party. As you've mentioned before, uh, you would have expected some comment about the diversity of the bridge crew from Christopher, given the man and the time he comes from. Kirk puts together a landing party of himself, fair enough, but also a Japanese-American man onto a US army base. 
Um, last week, or maybe a year in Kirk's future, uh, he will put together a team where it's Spock, the only alien on the entire ship uh, to be covert on the planet Earth. And now he's putting together another team. OK, fair enough. Maybe a security minded personnel. But maybe he should have thought of someone who looks more, I don't know, white and American. So, again, we have to think, this is the first time he's done this, so he should learn... Well, no, maybe he did. Because, basically, they've beamed down uh, Spock in his uniform, without a hat. So the first thing that people see is, oh my goodness, we've got this alien here, uh, if, if the court. So, obviously, they've, they've realised now. They, they, so when they beam down to see Gary Seven, they've got a hat on. And they're in the costumes, as they call them. So, yeah. Maybe maybe they have maybe this is actually chronologically yeah. correct. Maybe yeah, maybe he learnt from it and that you know at least Spock's got the hat on. Um, I don't know. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I think he's... you should you should always keep keep your hat on. I'm sure there's a song about that. Yeah, yeah. I'll look up. I'll look it up uh, later on. Um, we see. Uh, uh, Kirk and Sulu sort of skulking around. They've got some funky-looking torches. They've got a little device that can undo locked doors. That's nice, remotely, uh, in a in a uh, analog world. Uh, it was kind of nice to have a, a scene between Shatner and Sulu. I, I, I'm trying to rack my brains of any other time when that actually does happen in the show, where they're directly in the same room and it's just the two of them. There's not an ensemble cast. Yeah, that's a good point. Um... Given the oh, oh, it, exactly, exactly. I mean, considering um, it, then there would, the only normal time they would be talking to each other would be on the bridge, um, given directions. Uh, yeah, I would have to. I think there's. Yeah, there is. Yeah, you're right. Now you're thinking about it. It's all ensemble stuff, isn't it? I was just going to say, what about? Oh no, no, no. There was a, there was a few of them hanging around. Or yeah, this is one of the few times that you actually see them together. Although maybe it was this scene that that broke them broke them it's it just from the pieces of conversations that i've heard between the two actors it always seemed as though shatner always saw him as aloof because there were all the other actors around and there wasn't really a chance for the two of them to talk and sulu said that you know he was that shatner was being his blustery self i don't know who to believe uh but uh, <laughs> i uh, my theory on that is just sorry uh Dan, uh, but my theory on this is is that Shatner is a very complex character. I mean, when you've seen him in interviews or in game shows or whatever, um, he is very much a unique individual. And you either get his sense of humour or you don't. He reminds me a lot of my granddad. My granddad had this unique sense of humour, which is something that I think I have a lot of as well. And it, it can be, sometimes you can try a joke and it doesn't work and people take offence of it and, you know, they think bad of the of that person, and nothing you can say will take that away. Um, and I think it's his character to be, you know, he sort of. I mean, yes, he, he is obviously a lead in the show, um, so there is a bit of a history of that. He may have worked hard over the years to get to that point. Um, so, uh, you know, really, he should know where he's come from, and then apply that to the other people around him, and say, well, they're all in the process of working hard, and they maybe they need a bit of support. But he's always been this strange strange character i actually quite like him quite like him as a person um he does tend to have that water off the duck's back approach you know it's, oh, it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter i'm not bothered you know it's if it's offended you well that's your problem not mine which is <laughs> can be a bit uh, awkward but sometimes but um 
I think once you take, once you don't, th- once you think you don't like him, that sticks because he doesn't change and hasn't changed over the years. Um, and I think that's why him and uh, Sulu, uh, uh, for want of a better word, uh, don't really get on. No, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, he's yeah, he he does remind me of those that those awkward uncles at Christmas that you could you could get on with at certain points, but then there's just a few things that you know might throw the conversation askew and make you not like that guy. Um, but um, yeah, no, I I completely agree. It was just I could not think of another scene where it was just the two of them working together, uh, and whether this really was like you say the the moment that broke the two of them. Um. McCoy, back on the Enterprise, is getting a bit nervous, and they feel that they should uh, um, beam them back because it's been too long, and they're taking too long. Uh, and uh, he's he's already on Spock's case and saying, shouldn't you be working out your damn calculations to get us home and all this sort of thing? And Spock is just sitting there looking at the transporter pad. He is working out those calculations because he's a typical Vulcan, and he will be doing multitasking as we go. Uh, it's almost like when I'm doing the dishes and listening to podcasts myself on this little device that I have. Uh, Kirk and Sulu do, in fact, get found out as we pause this episode at 25 minutes, 43 seconds. We move to the episode at 46 minutes and 46 seconds. There's a guard just walking through in the corridor. He looks into the room. No, doesn't see anything. Just moves on. Strangely enough. Oh, the scene ends at 47 minutes, 26 seconds. And we come back at 25 minutes, 43 seconds again. Hang on a minute. That's another universe. Just... What's going on? It's almost like we've seen two episodes. Oh, no, never mind. Right, time warps. This is always about time warps. Um, uh, they beam aboard the same guard who seems to have found them this time round. And I love this scene. I just uh, Something about the way it's acted, the way it's played out, the fact that they beam him up and he refuses to get out of that position. He holds that position the whole way through. Other than a slight head tilt to look at Spock, who comes towards him, the tall, green-blooded man from Mars. And it's just brilliant physical comedy. I don't know about your thoughts on that, Paul. No, I do like it. I like this guy. Um, I don't know if he... I haven't looked into him to see whether he did anything... You know, after this or before this or where he is, where he became an actor, he has that face that seems familiar. But yes, I do like the fact that he's probably doing something that everybody here would do, and that is once you you suddenly beamed up into a spaceship and you're, I'm even though I've got a gun in my hand, I am not going to move because any if they can do this, they can do anything to me. If I don't move, maybe it's just a bad dream and it'll all go away. <laughs> it's great. His face is brilliant. I mean, great yeah, bit of acting. So good. So good. Um, and it just reinforces how well Christopher took it the first time he beamed up, and how much the best of the best he must be. That he just nonchalantly took it off. He was uh, uh, waffling off his uh, serial number because he thought he'd been captured by some foreign power. Um, but you know, this security guard who as far as he's concerned, probably he's just having a bad trip. It is the 60s. And he's just materialised into some area. You know, what was he taking five minutes before? Is it finally kicking in? Who knows? Uh, but he's just got that look on his face and it just is fantastic. Um, uh, now that they've got another problem with the guard on board, Kirk and Sulu then carry on with their mission to go and destroy the tapes or reset the tapes that have the visual confirmation of the Enterprise uh, back to 5.30 when they first appeared. And they go into a dark room, a red room, uh, they go in there but trip a sensor, alerting their presence to other guards on the base. Um, 
uh, Sulu is in the darkroom destroying the footage and he's got his communicator and he hears a ruckus outside and um, he doesn't defend his captain. He scarpers out of there. Um, and I do wonder whether that might have been George Takai in that scene as well. Maybe he wants to get far away from Shatner as possible. But there we go. Um, but we, here we get the classic Kirk Fu. I've been waiting for this the whole time. Um, in the last season, when we went to the, the 1600s, uh, I thought we were going to get it. We had a few hand chops and all this sort of thing, but it devolved into a sword fight. Uh, we had it in the last episode where there were scuffles with Gary Seven. But this time we had proper Kirk Fu uh, throwing himself off walls, double fist punches to people's faces, uh, barreling himself into a chest on somebody. For some reason, even though he's out of the room, he comes back in the room for even more of a punch up uh, to swing his way in on the door frame as well. Uh, any thoughts on classic Kirk Fu? This is classic, classic Kirk Fu. As soon as I, because I, I watched this episode uh, in preparation for recording today, and as soon as I saw this bit, my, it entered my head. Kirk Fu must, must say something about this. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, it is, oh, what can you say? It is classic. I'm just, I've just teed up the scene now. And, uh, I'm just, so I'm just watching it as we, as we go through this. But, um, you're going to have to edit this a little bit out while I fast forward it a bit to get to the actual action bit. Yeah, so, so straight away he pushes somebody into a big canister of films. He dives underneath the two people who try to grab him. So the, you know, the fools. Body slam. He throws himself into all three of them sideways, horizontally. A good punch here, a good punch there. Boom, one guy's down. Another guy's getting up and, oh, he missed. And the old double axe handle, two punches and the guy's on the floor. He's been grabbed from behind. Guess what? This guy's going over. There he goes. They're both rolling around on the floor, and the third guy goes over the top of them. He grabs the the door frame, jumps up, jumps over the second one. Oh, it's just, and the guy's got grabbed him by his leg. What's he going to do? The third person grabs him, and that's it. They've got him. They've got him. They find, and now he's pulled a gun. They finally get him by holding both his arms. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's brilliant. It is Kirk's way of fighting. It is Kirk Fu. It is classic Kirk Fu. I, I swear that William Shatner must be responsible for so many blooded noses on school playgrounds uh, throughout the US and the UK and beyond. Um, I myself, uh, as a tiny kid, um, it might surprise you to know I wasn't a popular kid. I was bullied. And when uh, people picked on me and, and things like this and things got a bit physical, more physical than they should have uh, back at school days, I, I, I was tempted to use a bit of Kirk, Kirk Fu every now and then. It didn't work, surprisingly enough. Um, you never use a stage fight technique to actually win a real fight because it will never work, kids. Please, if there is a health warning on this episode, never, ever use Kirk Fu. There is no bigger disappointment that appears on a man's face, or a young boy's face, when you do the double axe handle to the back of somebody's head, thinking they're going to go down, or the back of the shoulders, or whatever, and they just turn around and look at you and go, what was that? Oh, it didn't work. Maybe I have to throw myself bodily at them horizontally. That's, I think that's my favourite one, is just that he thinks he can take three guys on by just going into their bellies, by launching himself sideways. It's, it it would, just baffles. It would be so brilliant if 
if in a few years' time, if they had done it, you know, like a season four maybe, uh, where they would have just taken Shatner and he was doing one of these fights and he tried to do, you know, three people, side, you know, horizontal, fly into them horizontal and they would have all just caught him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's just hilarious. And I love that. And it's, it's, I, this, this is the weird thing about all of these time travel shows that we've been doing, that, we, that we've reviewed, Dan, me and you. Every one of them has had this little bit of quirky comedy in it. Whether it's, uh, even this fight is, you know, it's three on one. He, you know, they go to grab him. Two people go to grab him at the top. He ducks underneath and goes underneath them. That's just, that's a comedic fight. This is not a proper fight in any way. You know, it's played for laughs. You know, he, he grabs the, the, the door, the door frame and swings, you know, one guy goes running underneath him as he pulls his legs up. He drops down. He jumps over the next guy who comes at him low down. It's, it's hilarious. It's not a proper fight. And then at the end of it, they catch him and, he then plays dumb and you know takes the Mickey out of them, but when they're trying to interrogate him and all this, it's it's just where's this comedy come from? The whole <laughs> this was not a comedy episode at all, but has this little bit in the middle where you think this is hilarious. It's it not ta- it's not taking itself seriously. It really does feel it the whole way through the episode. You've got the you know the comedic computer that isn't talking properly. You've got these odd bits of comedy that seem to pepper through. Yet there's a really serious issue here. They are fouling up the timeline. They could destroy billions, if not trillions, of lives with every mistake they're making. And yet yeah, it's fine. It's a bit of a Kirk fight. It's okay, no problem. I did like the idea that he ducks below them because it does show three-dimensional thinking, uh, and hopefully that will hold Kirk in good stead in future combat. Um, maybe ship combat more than Kirk Fu, but there yeah. we go. Yeah, because space is flat, of course. Exactly. Yeah, these these uh, flat spaces that are about these days. <laughs> um, you uh, did bring up the interrogation scene after because it's another classic comedy moment. You've got this interrogator who's all serious and getting in Kirk's face. And, you know, we've got ways of finding out. We're going to take this apart. Um, I do like that he goes for the phaser and, and Kirk is saying, please, please be careful with that, uh, which puts me in mind of our first episode this season where we were talking about the guy who kills himself with the phaser by pushing it all the way to the top. Um, Kirk knows this all too well. And there's a really nice flinch that Shatner does. He sort of holds his eyes shut as he tosses the phaser to the other guard behind him as if he's expecting it to go off because he's been playing around with the switches and dials. Uh, it, it was just a nice little thought that Shatner was aware enough to think this thing's going to go off. I should react as though I'm preparing for an explosion. Um, I'm witnessing, witnessing another theme cropping up with other episodes I watch with you. Um, people burying the lead. There seems to be a real problem with people. Um, he's talking about all their charges against Kirk. He's saying sabotage, espionage, uh, unauthorized entry, burglary. You know, he seems to be sort of burying all the others. He sort of like tapers off towards other things that he's going to be doing. It put me in mind of the, you know, the the hot dogs, the uh, atom bombs. Um, when I did the episode for Little Green Men, we've got, you know, root beer, darts, atom bombs as well. People seem to have a real problem in ordering their, their accusations and uh, uh, and lists in uh, the time travel episodes. Um, he then says that I'm going to put you away for 200 years. And Kirk says that's about right. 100 years short, 
but you know it's around about uh, uh, that time. That, see, but, there's another good point, Dan. Uh, when that line is delivered, he is almost looking at the camera, and I, I think he so it's sort of played. You know, the fourth wall is broken. Um, again, I've just teed up the uh, the scene itself, uh, but he you know he says two hundred years. Yeah, that should just about do it, uh, and he. First of all, he looks. In fact, he's just got his now his head's turning slightly, so he's getting ready for it. And then he looks at the camera. He breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> maybe, maybe it wasn't a time warp that they put them through. Maybe this is a fourth wall breaking uh, warp, uh, and we've actually found a metaphysical way of time traveling through uh, through time and space. Uh, but it's it's very strange. It really is that. They were writing a comedy episode, but there are so many serious elements. It still, it feels like there's two episodes going on that we're watching. Um, uh, it was interesting that he did say that he's going to put him away for 200 years. When, uh, if this were Uffert Air Base in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Nebraska, even as uh, recent as I think it was 2015 in my research, still has 18 people on death row and the death penalty, which would be for sabotage and espionage. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's not going to get put away for 200 years. He is going to get it. Yeah, Kirk is not going to make it through. He is going to be a gold shirt who is going to get killed. Um, uh, we talk about little gray men from uh, Alpha Centauri this time, uh, not from Mars. And uh, in this time period, uh, as everyone knows, it's actually a human colony. So if he was a little green man, I'd be very surprised. Uh, Alpha Centauri is a human colony and a very famous person. You won't have heard of him yet, Paul, but he'll be really big. Zephram Cochrane lived there for a short time as well. A uh, really big name. He's like your uh, Elon Musk. Uh, he's he's that kind of guy. He's a really top-notch guy. Oh. But you'll hear about him in a few years' time. Don't okay. Christopher wants to go down to the uh, the planet. He wants to be on the away team, but Spock doesn't trust him. Uh, they take some phases along with him. The guard has now made his way off the transporter pad, and uh, Kyle feeds him some chicken soup. And I do like the the little moment where he's just uh, baffled by this technology that food has just been dispensed uh, out of a slot in a wall. And um, uh, again, it's just great comedy from this guy. He doesn't have to say very much. It's just like, it's chicken soup. Again, it's just just before just that scene where they they beam off and the, it's you see the guards' reaction to it and it's brilliant. It's it's just a little sort of you know that they start to beam and they disappear and he gives it that what, that little shake of the head of where they gone. It's almost as though he's going to look around the room and say, but you know where, where are they? But it's so subtle. It's just a quick sort of little flick of the head and goes, oh, they're gone. And then the chicken soup. He he's putting his finger in it and then licking it. And he goes, it's chicken soup. <laughs> and our um, our transporter chiefs are just going, yeah, yeah, that's chicken soup. Yeah, that's, that's fine. That's all right. Um, it 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 still makes me think that maybe he wasn't a bad trip, and you know this is all like part of that uh, for him. Uh, they finally go down. They go to rescue Kirk. Um, Spock appears at the door, which stuns the the guard who who greets him, uh, and we get a Vulcan nerve pinch. Uh, Kirk then punches out the guy who's been interrogating him and uh, Spock says, doesn't that get painful, Captain? Uh, and Kirk says, yeah, yeah, sometimes it's fine. But it, at least it was a, a decent punch. This wasn't Kirk Fu. That was a good punch uh, for me. Uh, although the guy was overacting a bit, I think, when he fell to the floor. <laughs> yeah, that's his big chance, wasn't it? I'm going to make it in the in the TV industry. <laughs> it looks like he'd been shot. He just punched him in his face. And it was one of those punches, not straight into the face, but across the face, because obviously the camera's behind. 
across the face and he goes down and he's like what are you doing man <laughs> you need to black out straight away you don't black out over like five seconds <laughs> um, uh, Christopher pulls a gun he uh, he deceives them and he wants to stay behind because he wants to go back to his family uh, Spock has disappeared into one room and has somehow come all the way round and appears behind him now did he beam up to the ship and then back down I would love to see that um, and uh, you know that's how Spock uh, outsmarted him and uh, the nerve pinch takes him down. Uh, Spock knew him all along. We now get the plan to return. And I think this is where I'm going to put in another Kirk. What? The slingshot effect. There's a whiplash, time warp. There's lots of words being banded around. Now, we talk about tech the tech speak and techno babble for Star Trek. But it feels like all these words are just being said to make it sound scientific. But um, they're going to be getting closer to the sky closer to the sun we're going to go back before yesterday and then we're going to go forward as well and i just baffle. it's again i hate temporal mechanics it's, but it's, any it's not in this plan yeah it's not just temporal mechanics it's physics as well they're going to use the magnetic attraction of the sun is the ship made of iron i mean what the magnetic attraction it's got gravity that's the attraction not not magnetism for goodness sake that's just a weird that's very very strange this they should say that you know the sun's a big magnet ball of iron over there you know they seem so sure of it like this is a done deal we just whiplash we time warp we slingshot they're just throwing words together and they think it's a plan it's it's bizarre i mean it's almost like techno babble it is like techno babble it really is but at least techno babble feels right this one just kind of sounds like, I don't know, I mean, I've got kids, um, you know, I, they're back home, back in my timeline. I hope I get back to them at some point. But listening to them talk to each other, it's just, this is just words being said. This is just confusion. <laughs> talking all of them. And you're just yeah. saying words to be heard. Yes, that's all my, yeah, we, we, we say that about my, my youngest son. I mean, he's 18 now, but he's uh, talking to one of his friends across the road. And we say, oh, they're, they're talking teenage again. No idea what they mean. That's it. It is. Oh, I might. I'm. I'm going to steal that phrase. They're talking teenage. I'm going to use that one on my wife, and she, uh, hopefully she'll feel, feel, hear that as well. Um. Yeah. So the craziest plan. They're going to fly towards the sun. Time will be going backwards. It did make me think. Wouldn't this happen every single time they enter any star system? The closer they get to the sun, they're going to go backwards. Maybe this is why we got star dates. I don't know. Because if they're going to go fast towards the sun, it's going to change it. Oh, never mind. Uh, and here's the other equally crazy part of the plan. They're going to beam them back into their own bodies. And somehow that undoes everything. And, you know, by going backwards in time, it removes the Enterprise when it was in time. And, and it's not going to be there anymore. And it, it, uh, uh, they didn't have sensors to be able to beam into a room, but they can beam someone back into their own body. That's my problem here. Yeah, yeah there's, uh, there's a, a physics problem here as well, is you cannot um, create energy. Uh, you can only change its state. And um, by, by going backwards in time, only a few days, you now have two extra people that have been created. You have the people on the, you know, actually on the Earth, the guard and the, and the pilot, and you have that same guard and pilot in the ship, you have now doubled the amount of energy and uh, 
mass, etc., etc., um, of the people. So this is why I say, and we'll more likely come to this on a different podcast, is that time travel cannot happen because you cannot have you cannot have more than two of the same or more than one of the same person because you are creating more more energy by doing that. More atoms and more things have to be created. You can't do it. Physics physics doesn't allow that in this universe. Very true. Very true. I'm glad you're on this podcast because you are sorting me out. I flunked uh, temporal mechanics at the academy, so I needed someone to straighten this out for me. Academy? Uh, um, oh, uh, my, <laughs> my, my school days. Sorry. Ah, ah, right. Yeah. That would make more sense. Um, Christopher does have a nice little line where he thanks uh, Kirk for the look ahead. Uh, we did have a moment earlier where he said that he uh, was passed over for the space program, um, just proving again how much of an elite of an elite he really was. Uh, but it was a nice little throwaway that he was just saying, you know, thanks for letting me see the hopeful future. And it is a very nice Star Trekian kind of feeling at the end there. And the Enterprise is breaking away and coming up to Pluto as time begins to move on. But we have to stop here at um, 45 minutes, 55 seconds. We now go back and we replace Christopher where he was supposed to be. At 47 minutes, 26 seconds, we're now putting the guard back where he's supposed to be. And we end at 47 minutes and 27 seconds. And that's it. Bit of weird time hopping there. But now those two divergences earlier in the episode make total sense. It was just them putting them back in the bodies and then and then doubling the energy and everything was fine. And that still doesn't make any sense to me either. Um, right. Let's move on to our criteria. That does make sense to me. So we've located our point in time, 1969. Next is continuity. Based on this episode, what do you feel the impact is on the future of Starfleet and the timeline? Do we feel like we've moved into a divergent timeline, as we've mentioned already a couple of times in this episode? Does it feel like this isn't part of the same timeline? This, um, again, like um, most of Kirk's uh, sojourns into the past, um, sorts, it all, all, bleh, sorts itself out uh, by the end of the episode. So there is no knock-on effect to the timeline. I think they do learn a few things from this episode so that when they go back in the future to further back in the past, uh, they learn how to wear hats and costumes and things. So it makes it easier for when they do go back in the past and they can, again, not have a knock-on effect, but they're a bit more prepared for it. So no knock-on effect to the timeline, but a knock-on effect to the future of how they go back in time. Pass me, that, pass me that aspirin again. Yeah, it's so hard. Why does it have to be so hard? Um, yep, yeah, exactly the same for me. They, they restore it, they reset it, they, they make, take great pains to show it in the episode that they've placed everything back to where it was supposed to be and they're about to slingshot back to their own time. So continuity-wise, I don't see a big problem. However, the fact that they mentioned a 2009 Earth Saturn probe does still bother me, but I think I might bring that up with Q. Um, from continuity, we go to alterations or, um, I suppose you could say expansions as well. Is there anything you would like to have seen delved more deeply in this episode? It's things you would want to see changed? Um, no, no, I think it, it's a very quick episode, and you know, sort of the time travel bit is in the middle, so it tend, it does sort of compress it a bit. Um, I, I, uh, I've got a few minor quibbles with the episode. I'd like to see a couple of things. You know, if you're going to beam down to the 
to uh, an Air Force base with a captain, at least put his uniform on so that he doesn't attract any attention of the guards. He could have walked in there, got the stuff he needed, and walked back out again, no problem. Uh, quibbly, quibbly bit. Uh, but other than that, no, I think it, it played out okay. Yeah. Um, as far as me, as far as changing the episode, I think it all kind of works well. There are odd bits that, um, you know, need a bit of headcanon exp- explanations and things like that. But overall, there's nothing I'd want to see changed. If I wanted to see something explored more, as we said before, the Signet 14 mission, just to see how uh, annoyed they could have made Spock, um, what they went through, how they resupplied, um, uh, what Kirk was doing, because if it's a planet full of women, we know what's going to happen there, um, and uh, and the woes that McCoy would have to deal with afterwards. Um, but uh, there is this another story. It feels like there was another story that needed to be told before this episode. And as far as I'm aware, it never is. Now that may be true in the books, but we don't take books into account on the uh, on the podcast here. Uh, but if anyone knows anything about a Signet 14 book or any kind of expansions on that, do let me know. Uh, I'd like to know. Um, but it does feel like that's it's right plucking for a little story there. Well, didn't they do something similar with the Next Generation episode um, where there was um, a, a group of people coming on, a group of aliens to come on to upgrade the computer and, and give it an overhaul. Uh, Next Generation 11001001, I think it was called. Um, oh, and they that, that had a bit of a knock-on effect with the, with the, holog- uh, with the holodeck, didn't it? They were it trying did. to take yeah. the ship. And... So, so maybe it was uh, they sort of used did use it like a, a, an unused script maybe on that? That Possibly. might be it. Maybe. Maybe indeed. Uh, right. We've done alterations. Now we're on to recommendations. Do we recommend this firstly to Star Trek fans? Is this a classic episode or could it be skipped? Oh, I think we'd definitely recommend this to uh, to Star Trek uh, fans because the Kirk Fu. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing else to be said. That, that's it. That's all you need to see it for. Just just seeing is believing when it comes to Kirk Fu. Uh, and slingshot effects, I suppose, as well. Uh, you've got classic time travel. Just sling yourself around a star, everything's hunky-dory. As long as your calculations are correct. And it also shows how to sweep up after the mistakes that you've made. So how to how to sort of cover up after um, you've made a, ba- a bad journey into the, into the past. So, uh, yeah, it's a good learning uh, experience for everybody. <laughs> uh, to non-Star Trek fans, how approachable do you think this episode would be to a non-Star Trek fan? Oh, that's a good question. This is another one of those tricky ones. Mm. Um, is there enough... I, sp- I suppose, because you could, like you say, with the slingshot effect, you can show people how you go back in time and, and how you can move forward. Uh, without the aid of a time machine, you know this is using physics, if you like, of a, of a sort. Um, so, yeah, there, yes, you could do. You could use it, as, and you know, use it as a an introduction into the characters because they're all pretty much, even though this is a very early episode, they are pretty much as they are and, and as they will be. So, yeah, I think it, it could be used as a, a warm up. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, thinking back to last week and how. The characters didn't quite feel like they were the real characters um, and how Kirk didn't seem to be acting in the right way. He was very doubtful of his own abilities. This Kirk at least seemed like he was ready to go for it. A little bit more reckless, maybe. Uh, but like you say, this is the learning curve. This is them learning how to time travel properly. Um, it was a good setup for those characters. 
Uh, my piece of evidence that it would be a good episode for a non-Star Trek fan, uh, my military-obsessed, war, World War II-obsessed son, whilst he was watching this episode, uh, he saw the footage, the stock footage of the planes at the very beginning of the episode. It's like, oh, what are you watching? Are you watching a war film, Dad? I was like, yes, yes, I am. He sat down. He managed to get through at least 10, 20 minutes before something else came along, and, and uh, he started talking teenager to his son. Mm. And off he went. Um, but uh, at least dragged him in because, again, you've got the period aspect of the time travel, and that does break it quite often. Uh, and I, so I think for me, it, there's enough in it to then drag in uh, someone who's unfamiliar, perhaps, with the uh, the Star Trek universe. And lastly, to the godlike entities, how important do you think this episode is to the overall franchise of Star Trek? Does it have to be watched? Does it have to be kept in? Yes, because of the slingshot. Um, it explains so many episodes ahead. Um, big episodes, big movies. Uh, it's definitely got to be in there. Yeah, there, there might not even be a planet Earth if we don't learn how to slingshot properly. Uh, and we will definitely find that out in, uh, I believe, our next episode. Uh, uh, do you mind if I call you back for the next episode as well? Yeah, yeah, of course. Ah, oh, fantastic. Brilliant. Four in a row. This is brilliant. Um, okay, so... Uh, We've done our recommendations. All that remains is for me to set up the next episode. And as I've just said, it's a big one. It's the movie. It is Voyage Home. We are going to the year 1986 for our episode nine. We are going to begin at timestamp 35 minutes, 34 seconds, just as the crew reawake from a slingshot into that year. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, for joining us um before we go actually i realized i didn't do this in the last episode where can people find you where can people follow you and what are you working on well following me uh not really i'm not big on the old uh, social medias uh to, to people outside my friends and family uh, but um you can get hold of us uh through uh, a, a new uh, project that we have just started together you and me dan and another person called Mr. Sean Vandaloo, uh, the Cosmic Pizza podcast, where we take a slice of life and we deliver it right to your ears uh, through the ability of podcasting. Uh, and basically, a show where we will talk about anything and everything. We will talk to anybody and everybody, um, and we just have a laugh. It's uh, it's a, a fledgling, fledgling show, so it's a little bit uh, raw at the moment. But uh, we'll see where it where it ends up. Uh, you can email us at the Cosmic Pizza Podcast at hotmail dot com. Uh, I believe we're on the the Twitters and the Facebooks as well, and we're on Tumblr as well, and uh, we're all over the place, aren't we? Uh, Tinder, I think we're on there as well. But anyway, um, yeah, you can find us on there. Come along and have a listen to it because uh, it's good. There is no real agenda. If you've got an idea that you, of anything you would like to talk you know, us to talk about. Or if you want to come on and talk to us about it, by all means do. Send us an email. Excellent. Yes, uh, it's a very tasty, very tasty slice, that cosmic pizza. Um, and uh, I'm really glad that my uh, ancestor, Daniel Hitch, also is joining in with you. So it's nice to hear that you know my family was in podcasting long before I got trapped here in this time bubble. Yes, yes. You're, you're great, 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 great. He was a great granddad anyway. I know that. I mean, He's he's a man of very little sort of importance uh, in the timeline uh, until I came along, obviously. Uh, so you know you, you need to sort of do a, a 
you know a check on your family history to make sure that he's important again but there we go um, it's not that anyone would make that kind of yeah mistake. that's right but it's good it's a good podcast come and listen to it remember the name uh, it's the three bald guys with glasses yes. podcast yes yeah it's a very easy very easy to get that model up so yeah three bald guys with glasses uh excellent well join me next time for voyage home and like i say 1986 35 minutes 34 seconds and I will see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at rider underscore coattail. Or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all, but if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon, and we'll catch you in the next time stream. <laughs>